This is on? All right. <laughs> Technology. Okay, so fair warning, Richard. The last time they gave me a, a hands-free mic, it broke on me. So there you go. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. I, I, I'm excited about this message. And we're going to pray in a moment, but just to kind of give you an idea of where we're starting, I'm starting on a topic that's discussed throughout the Old Testament. So, yeah, if we if we tried to cover all the texts that I'm trying to cover, you'd have to pack a lunch because uh, it'd be most of the Old Testament. But I'm going to summarize it because we so we are not here all day. Let's start off though with prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this day, for this message that you're working. Ask that you speak through me, Lord. People don't need to hear me, they need to hear you, God. We thank you, Lord, for this time and this word. In your name we pray, amen. All right, if you do want somewhere to kind of land in your Bible, uh, Judges 8 is where we're going to end up here in a second. So I want to talk a little bit about the cycle of nations. That is a term used, the cycle of nations is used to describe, well, I'll just basically summarize it for you. So we see a pattern throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament focuses a lot on God's relationship, especially with the children of Israel, the the rise of the Jewish nation. Old Testament covers about a 4,000-year period, whereas the New Testament is all written in less than 100 years. So some critics of the Bible will say, well, look how inconsistent the Old Testament and New Testament are big part of that is the viewpoint and where it's focused on. It's not inconsistent. It's, it's a very different a, a viewpoint, a very different approach. So the Old Testament spends a lot of time talking about nations. It talks about uh, the rise of nations, how it, nations interact with God, how God judges nations and brings them down. And what we end up with is we end up with a cycle. We end up with a time period where, and I'm just going to summarize it in five basic steps. There are other lists out there that do a lot more, but I just want to keep it simple. So a nation at some point comes to know God, they obey God, and they're blessed. And that's a a great time. nation rises up and knows God, and they're blessed. But inevitably, human nature is... We start taking another generation rises up or maybe a few more generations or even just a few years, period, people start taking the blessings for granted and they start forgetting about God. Then they start worshiping other gods, other ideas, other things take the place of God. And what does God do when that happens? What what can he do as a loving God? Let me start off with what he cannot do. He cannot continue to bless a nation that's disobeying him, that's, that's forsaking him, that's not following his ways. That would be wrong of him to continue to allow a nation to be blessed and think they're doing, a good, think they're doing well when they're really not, when, they're, when, they're, when they've forgotten about God and they're sinning. He has to get a nation's attention. And in his love, he has to prompt that nation to repent. He has to allow that nation to feel trouble and feel oppression and feel things that are unpleasant so they know, hey, we're not doing this right. Once God's done that, we end up at a fifth point where the nation has a choice. It's either going to repent and be healed, delivered, or it's not, and it's going to be destroyed. God's going to bring, rise up another nation to take its place. That's what, that's what he does throughout the Old Testament. We see it really clearly in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is like a 300-year cycle of Israel doing this. Oh, we, we know the Lord. Things are great. Forget about the Lord. Another generation or so, forget about the Lord. Start worshiping other gods, especially uh, Baal or Baal, as it's sometimes pronounced. Had these false gods, they start worshiping. And then, what's God do? Every time throughout that book, raises up somebody to start oppressing them. Some enemy, some somebody starts harassing them, and they start crying out to God for help. And then He brings up the deliverer, and they repent for a while. All that varies, and then right back to the same cycle. That's not just in the book of Judges. That's it's all through the Old Testament. We see it in the 
after the judges, you see it in the kings. You see it really strongly in the kings. You see it, uh, you, of course, you've got Saul and David and Solomon, and then you've got the kingdom split, and those, those are dramatic examples of this very cycle. You've got the, the Israel, the northern kingdom, their kings are a mess. And I'm going to have some more specific examples here in a second. This is an overview to get started. And Judah fluctuates. They have some good kings, some bad kings, but they are, there's always this relationship. Both kingdoms ultimately end up destroyed by somebody else conquering them because they don't repent. And then we walk through, we've got the prophets, and we have, we have the books where the, after the captivity, Judah's captivity, where they're restored. And then we have all these prophets that, that explain from different points of view What's, hap- what's happening? Why did the nations fall? Why was there captivity? Uh, w- what's happening with this restoration? And in those prophets, you see God doesn't just do that for Israel. He's doing that with other nations. You see, the, uh, especially the, the major prophets, you see all this talk about these other surrounding nations and God's going to bring judgment on them at this point and he's going to raise up this nation at this point and he just walks you through all these things that he's, uh, how he relates to nations and their rise and fall. It's easy to read through that. You you read through it and a few verses can cover decades or, or centuries or generations. But if you're somebody living at that time period, you're only experiencing one of these stages, typically. So, I want to try to find out, so what about the United States? What about our country? What about us today? Where where are we in this uh, cycle? I'm going to suggest that it's not, not exactly where we want to be. I'm going to suggest that we are in that fourth step where God's allowing our nation to feel the consequences of, of living him. And we're, st- and we're going to feel... We went through these previous steps already. The foundation of our country, I love U.S. history. I love world history, actually, too. But, and you can see God work all the way through world history. We can go through all kinds of examples, everything from Russia and Cuba and all kinds, all kinds of examples of how nations have risen and fallen and what happened with Egypt. and all. all. It's, it's not just, God did not stop dealing with nations under the New Covenant. It's, it's still, it's been, he's been doing this for the past 5,000 years of civilization ever since Noah's grandsons split up and spread out. He's been dealing with nations. They rise and they fall and based on how they interact with God. So where's, our, where's the United States' uh, part in this story? The founding of our nation was bathed in prayer and scripture and Christian leaders rising up. You read things like Benjamin Franklin uh, telling the Continental Congress, guys, we have to go, and Benjamin Franklin, by a lot of accounts, was not necessarily the most spiritual of guys, but he's the one standing up and going, why did we stop daily prayer? We have to go back to daily prayer. If, if God keeps his eye on the sparrow, how could a nation rise without his help? And you have all, and, and like that's that's like one of the least spiritual guys are around, and he's he's noticing this. Early colonies to even hold public office, you had to sign a legally binding document, a writ, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, and you are a Christian, to even hold public office. Our, <laughs> sounds a little different than nowadays, doesn't it? We still have. You know, our court, the Supreme Court, still has the Ten Commandments carved in its door, an inch deep into the wood of those doors. Our Capitol building is covered; the rotunda is covered with Christian artwork, the baptism of Pocahontas, the landing of Christopher Columbus. Who that history has been totally distorted. His, uh, 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 along with the Pilgrims, the, these a lot of these people. Christopher Columbus had a lot of aspirations to be a, a missionary. We talk about trade routes and everything, but his, he took the name Christopher. It wasn't his given name. He takes the name as a bearer of Christ because he wanted to be a missionary. Our history has been so distorted, you hardly ever hear that. We uh, taught school children for most of the beginning of our nation. You had the New England primer. 
Nice little book. If you've ever seen a copy of one, it's really interesting. Made like five million copies of that in the early colonies. And the churches ran the schools. And you learned how to read from this primer. Well, what's the primer? Well, it was Bible verses and Bible characters. And A is for Adam. And you go through and you, and each one, and you memorized scripture. That's how you learn to read is you learn to read from the Bible. Our early members of Congress, one of the, uh, if you ever get a chance to see, um, there's a private collector in Texas who has the largest personal collection of American historical documents. And he, he, if you see an interview with him, he'll show you the, uh, how the early Congress dug into their own pockets and, and financed the printing of Bibles because they wanted the American households to have Bibles, and that was good for the country that uh, homes in America have the Bible. Congress doing that. Have things changed? <laughs> and we as a country, we've gone through some cycles. We've had some great awakenings. We've had some dark times. So, so I'm not saying this has just been one trend. We've, we've had trends over the 200 plus years that we've been around. But we're at a point where a lot of our society... I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't even just say that where our Christian values are taken for granted. They're almost unknown. Our Christian foundation is almost just, just not even, a lot of people are not even aware of it. Don't even know God. A lot of our history, uh, a lot of our values of our blessings, a lot of our blessings have been, are, are just disregarded now. Or we're made to feel guilty because our nation has prospered when it was God who blessed us. But now we're told that it was wrong and we should, we should reject it. Have we worshipped other gods? Well, we don't necessarily have a lot of idols set up. I haven't driven around and seen a whole lot of giant idols, but the biggest idol that there has ever been is humanism. The worship of self instead of God. Garden of Eden, Satan comes in there and he doesn't say, hey, Adam and Eve, worship me. He says, Adam and Eve, worship yourselves in place of God. That's all he needed to do, take us down. That's our biggest idol is itself. In humanism, the worship of human beings, all of our answers will come from us. There is no God or we don't need him, us. That's the biggest idol you can have. Idolatry comes from, first invented by Satan, but comes from human ideas. So we've got, we've got an idol problem in this country. Humanism is saturating our schools, our media, our government. Very widespread. So what is the normal thing? Understanding this pattern from Scripture, what's going to happen to a country like ours at this point? We're going to feel some consequences. We're likely to fall under oppression. Throughout the Old Testament, God uses a variety of types of oppression. Sometimes it's bad leadership, bad government. Sometimes it's foreign powers that will harass or invade your borders or oppress or try to install their leader or leaders loyal to them and try to siphon off resources. You'll have people won't be able to find the truth. You can go throughout the Old Testament and people are trying to find what's, what's true, what's real. Do we see that in our culture? People don't know what's true or not? You, people will go to and fro trying to find answers. I find it interesting, and I, I apologize, I don't have the stats pulled up, but uh, our elections since 2000 till now. Have you ever noticed the way that we swing back and forth between Republican and Democrat? Dramatically. Huge majorities, much more so than in the previous century. This party has a giant majority. Two years later, we start moving back. Four years later, we start moving back. Another two years. Now we give this country a huge, give this uh, political party a giant majority in, in both houses and the presidency. And then we start going back this way and we start. And, and you think, you're like, okay, apparently uh, 
we don't seem to be happy with anybody's answers. We, we're going to and fro, but it doesn't seem like anyone has the solutions. We just keep going back to the, keep going between these two parties. These are normal things in Scripture. If a country has forgotten their foundation in God, they're going to suffer these kinds of things. I know it can be shocking to us. It can be infuriating to us. It can be, uh, I see social media. I know it's, it's really, it's a lot of people upset right now. And it's not that what's happening is good, but it is normal for the position that we're in. We're going to feel these kinds of things. God's not going to allow us to continue to enjoy the blessings we had when we were following him when we're not following him anymore. He's going to bring us to, push us towards repentance. In that sense, it is good because God has purpose for what's happening. It doesn't feel good. Reality is we start, as human beings, we start to feel what it's like to not know God. And so from, I'll throw some numbers at you, but bear with me. From 1999 to 2018, suicide rate in the U.S. has increased 35%. That's a lot. Keep in mind, I know, I know we focus on a lot of, the news is, it will tell you about homicides, but they don't tell you about suicides. For every homicide, there's two and a half, on average, two and a half suicides in this country. So as bad as you hear on, oh, wow, murder, homicide is, is really bad right now. But suicide kills far more people. Speaking of homicide, from 2019 through 2020 till now, most of our major cities and even medium-sized cities, major increase. California, homicides have jumped 30%. New York, about 40%. Chicago, about 50%. Varies around regions. Those are all huge numbers. These are the biggest increases in homicides we've seen in 30-plus years across this country. So you look at our society. Those are some of the bigger, more more eye-opening issues. We're not doing well. We as a country have been told over the last several decades throughout the education system and everything, if the humanists have told us, you just let us get rid of God and we'll build this really nice society. And over those past several decades, suicide, homicide, fatherlessness, divorce. You know, it's a weird thing. Most of our marriages end in divorce. And you say, oh, it's... People don't value marriage anymore. Well, there's a lot of people who don't value marriage that are not getting married. They just go from relationship to relationship. They don't count towards the divorce rate because they're not getting married in the first place. So this divorce rate of a majority of our marriage is failing. These are people who are actually trying to get married. This is, this is not just, not, it, it's not, well, we can just blame some group that doesn't value marriage. They're not counting against divorce, towards divorces. The breakdown of the, of the family with fatherlessness. And, I know, and thankfully, we as a church, we talk about that a lot, and we need to because that's really important. Father figures are extremely important, raising, raising kids. I don't think we're on the right track as a nation. All that to say, I don't think we're in the right place. But that opens up opportunities for the church. Because as society starts feeling that pressure, starts feeling those consequences of what it's like to be human beings without God, there are people who start to realize, this is not working, I need something real. It's an opportunity for us as the church. But we got to be careful as a church because sometimes we get the wrong idea of what's going to fix our country. And I'm going to have to make a direct point here because I woke up yesterday morning and God changed some of my notes. The Holy Spirit started speaking. And if he's going to cause me to not get to sleep in on a Saturday, you're going to hear what he had to say because (laughs) I value my sleep. (laughs) So I wake up yesterday morning and God starts saying false hope in the election cycles. 
I'm like, oh, okay. There are Christians who say, we're just going to hang on and you know, the upcoming election cycles will fix everything and we, and we just can continue to do what we've always done. We, we just have this hope that politics will change and everything will be fine if, it, if the politics change. We just change our leaders. Maybe we'll get a leader that we really want back in the White House or we'll, maybe we'll, we'll just hang on and, and it'll be fine. If the people of a country are not willing to repent, the leader is not, it's not enough to change a leader. I'm going to show you some examples in Scripture. After Holy Spirit starts speaking to me, I grab my Bible, I open it up, and it falls open right to Gideon, and I about fell out of my chair in shock. I was sitting there for a second. It took me a little bit to process what, what had just happened, but this Judges 8, in tw- starting in 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, so this is, sorry, let me set the context here. You remember Gideon, right? The 300 men, and he starts off with several thousand, God keeps whittling, whittling them down to 300, and he goes up against Midian. Midian's got tens of thousands, something like 130,000 troops, what, massive number or something like that. Gideon's got like 300 guys, and and God miraculously delivers his army into his hands. And he, he's, a, he, he's a hero now. He's a big deal for, for the Israelites. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson. Like, hey, we're going to a, a, we're gonna make your family a dynasty. You're, you're, you're going to be our king. Because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Notice they didn't re- recognize it was God. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It notes it was custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. So they had taken some plunder from their enemies, and Gideon's like, give me some of that, and I'm going to make a gold ephod. Ephod's kind of like, like you'd, you'd, wear a, you'd wear a cloth robe and you have this metal, almost like an apron, like the priest would wear. It would fit over you and it would have special symbols, designs on it, ephod, something for a priest, not something Gideon should really be making. He placed it in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Verse 33, no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the worship of Baals or Baals. They set up their gods. They did not, and it says in 34, they did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of their enemies on every side. Now, Gideon's kind of a classic biblical hero. we, We talk about Gideon quite a bit in Christian circles. But imagine if you said, well, if we just had somebody like Gideon raise up in our country, he would fix everything, right? Did, did that work? Where, where would you end up with that? He, he couldn't, the people were so prone to idol worship that if God raises up a hero, they'll worship the hero as an idol instead of, instead of God. And whatever he does is tainted by the idolatry. I'll, I'll build this maybe commemorative you know, ephod. Oh, we're going to start worshiping it. You know, come on. He can't do anything without somebody turning it into an idol. And we've got to be careful. I know, in conserv- I know in conservative circles, there's a lot of appreciation for you know, certain, certain individuals, but you're not supposed to worship anybody, Okay. You can't turn what somebody did into an idol and start worshiping them. So, but maybe, okay, yeah, that thing was Gideon. What about King David? Hey, there's a guy, right? He's, he's, he's King David. If we just had somebody like him rise up, right, in politics, that would, that would fix everything. Second Samuel 24. I find this so fascinating. We hardly ever talk about this when it comes to David, King David. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. 
And he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Taking a census of the fighting men was a, was a cursed thing. God had told them, you do that, you know, it's an automatic punishment. In verse 15, skipping down, by all means, read all of Second Samuel 24, but I want to highlight certain verses. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Bathsheba died. God had given David a choice. Here's your three different punishments. And David said, well, I don't want our enemies to have victory over us. I'd rather, or I trust your judgment more than I trust being delivered to my enemies. So the Lord unleashed a death angel and a plague swept across them and killed them. This is, this is King David. We, we tend, especially in our American mindsets, well, if the leader makes a mistake and brings God's judgment, it's the leader's fault. It's not the people's fault. But what does verse 1 say? Why did God allow this to happen? The people were sinning, and, he, and God was angry with the people. It didn't matter that they had King David of all, of all leaders they could have. It did not change the fact that God was still going to punish their sin. Without their repentance, it didn't matter that you had a great leader. Well, what about somebody, what about uh, overthrowing a bad government? Ahab and Jezebel in 2 Kings, really bad, epically bad. Northern Kingdom, Kingdom of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel, awful individuals. And God raises up somebody to overthrow them, and you think, oh, this, this is fantastic. Surely this leader, he's, he raises up, and he, do, he doesn't just destroy, Ahab is killed in battle, but Jehu comes in and destroys Jezebel, who was arguably the worst of the two. I don't even know if that's arguable. Pretty well was the worst of the two. Uh, and destroys Ahab's lineage and his family, and, and just, I mean, takes care of that kingdom. They're not rising up again. They're done. It must be a hero. Must be, this guy's going to fix everything, right? Second Kings ten twenty eight. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. That's good. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebet, which had caused Israel to commit the worship of the golden calves at Dan and at Bethel and Dan. In verse thirty one, it says Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord. Now. To fill you in on the context, God had given Jehu an extremely good deal. He says, I'm going to raise you up. You're going to destroy Ahab and Jezebel, and I'll preserve your line for, to the fourth generation. I'll, I'll make you a dynasty. That's a good deal. Um, and you think, oh, he, he rose up and overthrew a corrupt government. Oh, he's, he's a revolutionary. This, this guy must be great. But he was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which caused Israel to commit. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hazel overpowered the Israelites throughout the territory. He doesn't obey God. And what's the consequence? God starts taking away Israel's territory. They start becoming susceptible to their enemies. They start... I know it would be so exciting to think about, I, I know, we, we as Americans, we value our revolutions because we had such a, um, we had such a successful revolution that has produ- that produced such a stable country because of God's direction in it. Some people say, well, what about today? Look at our society. You could overthrow, if you overthrew the government, you could have one twice as bad the next day. If you have a if you have if you have an unrepentant corrupt society, you can't just raise up a new good government. I'll give you a couple examples. So when I was in college, I did a, a world world finance project on Indonesia, their transition from a dictator to a democracy. And back in the American Revolution, uh, the beginnings of it, there were debates about why should I trade one dictator a thousand miles away for a thousand dictators one mile away. That was the, those who say, 
you know, why do I need to rebel against the king and replace it with with a group of uh, group of a bunch of little dictators? What's, what's the point? Indonesia actually did that for real. Uh, they overthrew their dictator and they ended up with a bunch of little dictators. And their experience in democracy has been highly questionable. Uh, rampant corruption. They've they've had all kinds of problems. And you'd think, well, they got rid of that dictator. But without God, without a repentant society, without people repenting, you just change it for a whole bunch of other corruption. Just swapped one form of corruption for another. Uh, it was said previously in Indonesia, if you wanted to get business done, you paid one uh, fine, uh, paid one uh, bribe, and it would all get done. And now you do business in Indonesia, you've got to bribe everybody. You've got to bribe all the local officials, all have their hands out for bribes, and you just trade up corruption for more corruption. The biggest complaint was businesses saying, at least previously the corruption was structured. You just could pay one bribe and it'd get done. Now it's all chaos. Egypt, recent history, Egypt. Not so long ago, they overthrew their, their dictator. And they elected the Muslim Brotherhood as their rulers. And they have suffered for years. They, don't, they got a lot of news coverage a few years ago when they overthrew the dictator. Hardly anybody talks about them now because it has been a nightmare of trying to get some sort of stable government ever since they overthrew that dictator because... What they're pulling from, you know, your, their society, they don't know God. And they don't have a Christian foundation to pull from and, and have a godly government. So they ended up with a radical government that has killed a lot of people. Now they're trying to get rid of them. That would be the United States if not for God. We would have just kept having revolutions. We would have done Thomas Jefferson saying, every 75 years we should have a bloody revolution. And that would have, well, thanks Thomas Jefferson. Uh, but that would have been, that would have been us, if not for God, if not for a Christian foundation. Thomas Jefferson was another one of those kind of questionable on his Christian credentials. So what about one of our favorites in verses, Second Chronicles? If my people are called by my name, yeah. You know I'm going there. Of course, I have to go there on a message like this. So Second Chronicles 7.12. So, context again. We need to know what's going on. Solomon's just dedicated the temple, and fire's fallen from the sky. Really cool things have happened. Solomon's finished his, his palace. He's finished the temple. There's been dedicated. He's done his work, and then God begins to speak to him. So this is after chronologically after the dedication of the temple. The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. And we're off to a good start. So this is good news for Solomon. Verse 13. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. One of our favorites, right? So who are the people who are supposed to humble themselves and pray? And we say, well, it's people called by God's name. It must be the church, right? But... When he's referring to my people who are called by my name, he's referring to the nation of Israel. And he just referred to among my people in verse 13. Did I, did I run over? Did I? No. Uh, he just refers to, in verse 13, if I send a plague among my people, well, he's not sending a plague among a group of believers within the nation. He uses my people for both groups. He's, he's referring to the nation as a whole. That's the people who need to repent, turn from their wicked ways, and then I'll heal their land. It's interesting, God, of course, God being God, knew ahead of time, you guys are going to stray from me. I've blessed you through King David. Solomon now has all this wealth and his wisdom. You have this temple, and I know you're going to turn away from me. Again, cycle of nations. I bless you, and then you're going to forget about me and take me for granted, and then I'll have to punish you. 
So no rain, locusts devouring the land. Uh, Natural disasters are, again, one of those things that God uses to get our attention. Kind of like 2020, having the United States and having a pandemic, record-setting wildfires to the point that smoke was over our own heads all the way from California, record-setting number of hurricanes and named storms all in the same year, as if someone was getting our attention. Now, this idea, though, that the nation, the people need to repent. Not, it's not just the church within its church walls. Well, if we repent, then God will heal our whole land. No, he's saying my people, called by my name, refers to the whole nation. So we need, we need people outside the church to be repenting. And that kind of raises a problem because somebody's got to go tell them that they need to repent because they, 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 they won't know. I mean, yeah, we in the church, okay, but how will they know? They might feel the trouble. They might feel the oppression. They might start wondering, something's wrong. I need something. But unless we tell them what it is they need and what it is they are missing, they're, they're not going to know. Yeah, if only God had a group of people that know him and could go tell people, right? So, how are we going to respond to this? So, Luke 15. This has really been jumping out to me lately. I'll start a little bit ahead, but we'll, we'll get down to the verse. So now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Okay, so this is not really your church crowd. You're not not your not your you know necessarily. These are people that were despised by the religious group. So this is this is not your normal like church service or something. Tax collectors and sinners are all gathering to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, "This man welcomes sinners and eats with them." Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who do not need to repent. I don't know how many times I've read that, but that verse lately has absolutely been ringing in my ears because I have to raise the question, why are our churches designed to take care of the 99 if we know that heaven rejoices even more about going and getting the one? A lot of our church structure is about, okay, we've just got to maintain these people we have. Or just maintain another group. Some might come, some go, but we're okay. We're gonna we're just gonna take care of ourselves and fix our all, all of our own problems. Talk about all and and there's a world out there that the God is just waiting. Heaven is waiting to rejoice at the at the at the lost repenting, coming back to Him. If that's that's quite a statement. Rejoice more over one sinner than nine than ninety nine. We we kind of our church size is. Maybe roughly 100. Maybe we have 99. And are we just going to maintain this, or are we going to go go find that lost sheep, go find that sinner? Hence the title of my sermon, which I didn't mention at the beginning, but are we fine with the 99? Are we content to just, well, we got the, we got the 99, it must be good. But heaven rejoices more over one sinner who repents, the 99 who are righteous. That really sounds like a, uh, a change in the mindset from maintaining a group to this group. This is, this is Jesus' heart cry. This is heaven's heart cry. We as believers, away from just maintaining this group to how can we reach out and bring in that, bring in those sinners bring them to repentance. That, that's a change in mindset from inside the building to reaching the communities around us. And we have, as a church family, a unique opportunity, both in Henderson and in Evansville, to do this. And God has been preparing us for this. 
Another parable, Matthew 13. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, this is the classic sowing seed, but, but stick with me. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. I, again, I love Connie's artwork in this. I want to thank Connie. She actually prays over this, these slides that she does. This is part of her ministry to this body, is her artistic ministry, and I really appreciate that. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Yes. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. This is a classic parable. We talk about this a lot. And we usually focus on the three failures. We usually breeze over, at least I have, I tend to breeze over at verse 8. Oh yeah, good seed fell in the good soil. Oh, there's more to that. Wait, it says it produced a crop of 100 or 60 or 30 times what was sown. That's really easy to breeze over, but Jesus actually comes back to it in verse 23. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Well, wait a second. It sounds like God has this expectation that if he invests in somebody, there's going to be a return. There's going to be other people. If he's going to get a harvest bigger than what he just he sowed in that one person. That person's going to affect other people. And that's, an ex, that's a expectation. It's a characteristic of that good soil. That's, what it's, that's, that's what's expected. Can I tell you, I, I am typically a kind of introverted, not, I'm not the most outgoing person, not the best, to, I, I, don't, I haven't done a whole lot of what I would call witnessing, but it's something I want to grow in. So this is not a shame on you for not witnessing kind of message. This is a, I want, I want to grow along with you, and all of us growing in this and producing these harvests, reaching people. I want to revisit, and this, this will be interesting. I don't have this in the slides. Um, I can't guarantee, even with our best efforts, that we will turn our country around. That there's, no, there's no guarantee of that. There's no promise of that. But we need to reach as many people as we can with the gospel, with repentance. Not with a political change, but with repentance and knowing God. I want to talk a little bit. President uh, John Adams, our second president. So he writes a letter to the Massachusetts militia in 1798. So the Constitution goes and is ratified, 1789. Um, George Washington would have believe still would have been president at that point. But John Adams comes in as second president. He's got the constitutions actually in place. He writes to the Massachusetts militia. And this is, this is a late 18th century kind of writing, so bear with me here. While our country remains untainted with the principles and manners which are now producing desolation in so many parts of the world. So he's saying things are going well here in, in the United States. We don't have the problems that we're seeing other places have. While she continues sincere and incapable of insidious and impious policy, we have the strongest reason to rejoice in the local destination assigned us by Providence. 18th century for it's really cool that God has us here in this country. But should the people of America once become capable of that deep simulation towards one another and towards foreign nations, which assumes the language of justice and moderation while it practices inequity and extravagance and displays 
in the most captivating manner, the charming pictures of candor, frankness, and sincerity, while it is rioting and rapine and insolence. 18th century way of saying, if we get to the point where we're claiming that we are all about justice and equality, but we're actually extravagant and rapine, which is violently taking other people's properties and rioting, if we get to that point, we're telling ourselves in other countries that we are so just, but our actual what we're, what we're actually doing is 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 rioting and insolence. If we get to that point, if you see that happen in this country, this country will become the most miserable hab- habitation in the world because we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, which is aggressively seeking wealth, avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a well going through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to to the government of any other. He's he's writing and saying, look, this Constitution's great, and we don't have problems here like other nations do. But if we start if we're no longer bound, unbridled by morality and religion, and if we don't have that anymore, we're in trouble. Because we don't have the, the, we don't have the political means to restrain human nature. We're going we're to be in real trouble as a country. I would contend that, that sound, a lot of that sounds really familiar right now. Revelation 13. So I have to ask, I, I really want us to reach the communities around us. And I hope our country turns around and is a Christian nation again and is blessed, but I cannot promise any of that. Revelation 13, verse 7. It was, this is referring to the beast. The beast has risen up. Okay. So it refers to the beast. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. I I love the United States. I really want us to change our country. But eventually we're going to lose the United States at some point. Because we get to this point in Revelation, I don't see a God-fearing United States here. I don't see a free, I don't see a free, um, freedom-loving United States here. I, don't, I know what we desire, but I don't see it here. By this point, the United States is either gone or it's just another nation under, under the beast control. So long-term, the long-term prognosis for our country is not good. But we have an opportunity now to win our community, to reach out to our communities around us and try to, as a rescue mission, save as many, you know, it's, it's like having a, a special uh, assignment to try to save as many people as you can. I know... Um, I was I was looking at this verse and picturing. I, I know there's a lot in the conservative circles where you hear, "Oh, I just love hearing that commentator." Or are they a Christian? Well, no, but they're a conservative. They're they're awesome, and they they say they talk about freedom and, and oh yeah, it's they're, they're great. That that's fine and and well, but if they are not a believer, there's going to be a point with this beast where there's conservatives and liberals standing side by side worshiping Satan. If they don't know, if they don't know God, whatever polit- whichever political side they're on, at this point they're worshiping they're they're worshiping the beast side by side. Something to keep in mind about getting too wrapped up in in, in the political commentary. We need to be wrapped up in, in the Word of God and in the gospel. Now. So here's. 
let's make it personal now. What do we as individuals need to do? And I'm at the last point. So if Ryan, if you want to round up the team and come on up when you can. Uh, I want to share with you something about what are we, not just we as a church, but we as individuals, ooh, what can we do? What can we, what can we what, what's the takeaway point from here? What, what's, and I want to go back to the pilgrims. Remember the, the pilgrims and the Native Americans and the first Thanksgiving and all that, yes. 1620, the history of the pilgrims is, is amazing. And I will say this unequivocally, they are the reason that we had a spiritual foundation and a spiritual heritage in this country. The first established town, Jamestown, Virginia, was mostly a business-oriented, a business venture. The pilgrims came specifically as missionaries to reach the Native, the Native Americans. And God, they got hit with a storm and, and because they were wanting to come to Jamestown. They get hit with a storm, they get way off track, and they end up in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and there are, wasn't Massachusetts back then, but you know what I mean. But there are Native Americans already there who had been to England who spoke English, and they were, they were right where they needed to be to be able to plant a Christian foundation and start and give this country a Christian soul that continued all the way until now. That's why we, why we became a Christian nation was that little group of pilgrims who had been run out of England, had gone to Holland, um, went through all kinds of things, came across on the Mayflower. It was not a pleasant journey. They lose half their people the first year here. And a lot of history will tell you nowadays, well, they were just seeking religious freedom. And that always bugged me as a kid. That always bugged you. Like, they were, half of them died. What good's religious freedom if you're dead? Like, like, they, like that's not a motive. I mean, the, the owner of the Mayflower begs them to get back on the boat and go back home because they were dying. And they say, no, we're going to stay here. And why would you stay when you're dying? William Bradford, the longtime uh, records keeper and ended up being governor, wrote exactly what their motivation was. A great hope and inward zeal they had for laying some good foundation, or at least to make some way thereunto, again, old-fashioned writing, thereunto for the propagation and the advancing of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in those remote parts of the world. Yea, they Though, yea, though they should be but even as stepping stones unto others for the performing of so great a work. What's he saying? Uh, we're, we're, we're ready to lay down as stepping stones and let other people come behind us. We, we just want to plant a foundation and then other people can just walk on us to get there. Stepping stones, you, know, if you ever crossed a creek in the woods and you got those stones that stick out and, and that lets you, and you, you work your way across? Those are, those are stepping stones. Those are places that you can, things you can step on to get across something. That's what, that was their motivation. Like we might even die while we're doing it, but we're just, we're so determined to advance the gospel of Christ that we're just, we'll lay down and let other people walk across us to get to that objective. People will come behind us and win, and win the, this lost. They ended up establishing a government there that even the, the the natives had equal rights along with along with the Europeans. It's a it's a fascinating success story of of, of the community that they built that history nowadays often ignores. They were tremendously successful. They never could have anticipated they'd end up with the United States, the country that sends the most missionaries and prints the most Bibles and does all all the things that our country has done as the most prolific Christian nation. I had no idea they were going to have that much success. But they were just willing to lay down stepping stones. It's a little group. And I tell you personally, I've come to this point. Now I'm, I've had a lot of insecurities over the years, and now I'm standing up and speaking in front of people, or I teach classes, and like it's kind of a thing where you're like, oh, yeah, this is cool. So now what do I do? Well, I lay down as a stepping stone and I try to help other people advance. Like if I can share um, as far as teaching, I want to help Pastor Chad raise up more teachers. I want to help other... It might mean that I start getting overlooked 
or my uniqueness might not stand out as much. That's fine. I just ready to lay down as a stepping stone and help other people get across so we can do more more work and reach more people. That's what I'm asking all of us as individuals. Whatever God's God, God develops that gift in you and like, oh, this is great. It's my time to shine. No. It's your time to lay down and, and help other people. Pour into other people. Help them get farther along. That may me that as a teacher, as a member of the worship team, as, as whatever you do, there's that risk. Hey, if more people come in, I'll start being overlooked. I won't I won't stand out as much. Things will change. Things might feel different. We are stepping stones to lay down to try to help other people get get to the gospel. That's what I want to leave you with. I, I ask that you uh, that you pray and ask God what that looks like for you, and that my prayer for you is that you get to that point of security where you can say, "God, I don't have to." grab a bunch of attention. I don't have to hang on to how this church body feels. I'm open to ready for other people to come in and join our church family and join and reach these two communities. And things can change and I won't freak out. Yeah, I will trust that God has got this and it, and and enjoy what he what he's doing. If if anyone does want to come does want to come up for prayer. Always, that's always welcome and encouraged here, of course. serious accident um, had something severed with her with her eyes and is in urgent need of prayer so let's agree together let's close uh, in a word of prayer but agree for this prayer request Lord we come before you we lift a loved one of one of our family members one of our own Lord who has an urgent need and Lord we pray for your intervention we pray for your healing we pray that you touch this individual bring healing, bring bring rescue to her and her family, Lord. Pray that you give Sherry the, the wisdom and words to minister to her family. Lord, we ask your divine intervention. Lord, we understand you are the you are the providence that writers in the past spoke of. Your 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 will, your divine will and your way, Lord. We ask Lord, in your providence to intervene and to touch this individual, Lord, in Jesus' name. And Lord, help us as a church family to take the chance on reaching that lost one. Not just, not just, to, Lord, don't let us be content with just being the 99 anymore. We want to go out and win that person that's going to cause heaven to rejoice more than it's rejoiced over us, Lord. It's exciting, Lord, to be a part of that. Lord, 
help us all individually and as a church family accept this mission and move forward, Lord, in you. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord. Amen.